And for that, go ahead and find your way to Psalm chapter 8. So that the final, for now, in our continuous series of the Psalms, I'm sure we'll come back to the Psalms many times again and again, but for now, Psalm chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place, what is man that You are mindful of him and the son of man that You care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the works of Your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Now, Lord, open Your Word to us and let us see. God, open each mind and heart that we may see your majesty. Amen. This psalm is rightly famous as a thunderous hymn of praise to the majesty of God. Notice how it both begins and ends by fixing your attention on Him. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Verse 9, the same way, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. That's the theme. But then in between those two ends, it reveals God's purpose in creating us as humankind in His image. uh, To rule over His works for His glory. Something, by the way, the rest of the Bible goes on to show that we have failed to do. And so, pointing out ultimately our need for a Savior to come and restore us to that place of majesty that our sin has lost. And so with God's help, we're going to look at this this morning as we enter this Advent season of looking to Christ by faith. And we begin by just staring at Him. The majesty of God in the beauty of creation. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. So we begin with God, and we begin by praising God. But which God? Notice, He is named for us. Do you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? Never forget, when you see that, that's a signal to you that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So this is not just an unknown God, some generic deity of myth and legend, uh, but the knowable God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The personal deity who has made Himself known in the history of Israel and in the sending of His Son, Jesus. And so we could translate this, and some versions do, O Yahweh, our Lord, our Adonai, which means Sovereign Master, Ruler of all. That's the point. He rules. He reigns. 
He is exalted high above this world and everything in it. That's the point of this word majesty. Which means that which is high and exalted, overwhelming in its power, and splendid in its beauty. In fact, to get at the meaning of this word, you really need to combine those two thoughts of power and beauty. Now think of that word majesty. Now, where have we heard that word before? Who is His Majesty? Right? That's usually a king. I know we're Americans, but, but we understand that, right? That's a king. And so this is a word that refers to a kingly power, to, to royal nobility, to that which is lofty in its presentation, but also beautiful to behold. Majesty. Have you ever, have you ever stood in awe before the majesty of something like maybe a glorious sunset? And so we're told, how majestic, how infinitely beautiful and powerful is your name. His name. Name in the Bible refers to the personal character of someone. Uh, What they are known to be. So to have a bad name is to have a bad character. To have a good name is to have a good reputation. To have a majestic name means that you are known to be filled with infinite power and beauty for good. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Above the heavens. Now think of that. Think of that. Think of what that's saying. Try to picture this in your mind. Above the heavens. And so it's not just that God's glory goes all the way up to the heavens, as high as that is. That it, but no, no, it extends beyond the heavens. So, so it's higher even than those infinitely distant stars that you see twinkling at night. As high and beautiful as they are to behold. I mean, have you ever just stood gazing at the night sky? In all, as high and beautiful as those stars are, He is infinitely more so. His power and beauty transcend the known universe and everything in it and beyond. So that whatever beauty and power we see up there, He stands far above it. He is transcendent. That's the theological word we would use. He transcends all that is. He's above it. And yet He is also imminent. That's another theological word that means close at hand, right there beside you. And so this majestic Lord, notice, is also our Lord. Oh Lord, our Lord. He's Emmanuel, God with us. A God we can know and relate to personally through the person of Jesus Christ. And so this infinitely powerful God has written His glory across the heavens for all to see. So high and exalted is He, and yet so near that He makes Himself known in the babble and the cry of infants. Like that. 
right? Now, now, this is truly a marvel. Verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still or quiet the, the enemy and the avenger. And so we've moved down from the highest heights of infinite power in the heavens above into the lowest depths of helpless humanity. By the way, the same track that Christ will follow in the Incarnation. Philippians 2, Jesus, though He was in the form of God in all of the power and majesty of deity, didn't count equality with God something to be held on to, grasped for His own power and use, but emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. From the very highest heights to the lowest depths. But look what it says. It says, God makes His glories known through babies. Literally nursing infants. Out of the mouths of babes. Somehow, the helpless noise of an infant made in God's image has power to silence the snarling shout of the enemy and accuser. And so that same sense of awe that we see in the heavens above, we can see that same sense of awe in the face of a newborn infant. Isn't that true? Can you imagine a more powerful statement of the infinite worth of every little life made in God's image than that? That every child born into this world stamped with God's image is like an arrow shot out of God's hand into the heart of Satan. No wonder Satan hates these little lives and rages against them with a toxic political culture of death that seeks to stamp them out through abortion and abuse and to snuff out these little lights that God has made for His glory. Every child born into this world is a potential candle lit in the face of this present darkness to drive it back, especially when you see that little life come alive and get lit to the praise of the glory of God, which is what we pray for every one of these you're hearing around you. And so we who love and honor God must love and protect every little life made in God's image. We are pro-life because we're pro-God. And we are pro-life because He lights these lamps to show His strength and power in a dark, God-denying world so that... Think of this. So that even the act of having children, of being committed to marriage and staying married and raising these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord can be an act of defiance against the forces of darkness and a testimony to the glory of God. And so this this is one aspect of your Christian calling. It's not the whole of it. Of course not. But God will use the littlest, most common things to bring Himself glory. God will use these little ones that right now consume so much of your time and effort and energy in a way that seems endless. These little ones who make noise when we're meeting like this and distract you from what you were trying to think. But it's worth it. It really is worth it. And you've got to hold on to that, especially you who are in the middle of that part of your life, and keep teaching them and keep discipling them and disciplining them and pointing them to Christ 
that their little lives might become in His good grace fully lit for His glory so their voices can be raised to silence the rage and the lies of the enemies who say God is not great or glorious. And kids, children who are in this room week after week with us, we, we are so glad that you are here with us. I know sometimes you don't really want to be here. I know church can seem boring to you. That's okay. Put up with it. Because listen, you are important. Having you here is important. You matter. Your little life can have a big impact. And so we're going to teach you and we're going to love you and we're going to pray that God lights up your life to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Because you see... God doesn't need a great big platform that we provide for Him. God doesn't need big, important people to go do things as a favor to Him. No, what He really desires is your little life surrendered to Him, learning to praise Him and desiring to follow Him. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our prayer for you. There was an event in the life of Jesus that kind of illustrates this point. In Matthew 21, He had just healed a lot of broken people, uh, blind and lame. And it says, When the chief priest, this is chapter 21, verse 15, when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And He said to them, they said to Him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read Psalm 8? Haven't you ever read Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So keep praising Him, kids. Make a joyful noise. Because the greatness of God is on display not only in the glories of creation, but also in the cries of little children. Second, notice... From that, we see the majesty not only of God, but the majesty of man made in God's image. Verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you, that you care for him? So the glories of God displayed in the heavens are not only magnificent, they're also humbling. Verse 3 says, Go outside... Look up and see it. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, when I look, do you ever look? The word means to gaze with concentration, to behold. So it's not just a glance skyward on your way to the car. It is a pause to ponder. It is a, a stop and think kind of moment. Do you ever do that? Have you done it? Lately, we get longer nights this time of year. That's one of the benefits. I mean, I know life is really busy this time of year especially. We're all in a hurry. But do you ever do you ever stop long enough to look up and see, and I mean really see, the marvel of His majesty displayed in the sky? And have you taught your kids to do that? You see, they need to learn to feel a sense of awe standing before the glory of God. 
And so nearly as important, not quite as much, but nearly as important as it is to bring them to church, it is also important sometimes to take them outside. Get away from the city lights where the beauty of the sky can actually be seen. Make them put down their devices. And by the way, if they're little, they shouldn't even have them. I'm not joking. You're harming them. All the evidence is in. Putting devices in little ones' hands. People are... People have studied the psychology of children and teenagers to addict them to something that is going to rewire their brains in ways that are not good. So, take away the device. Make them stop and stare at God's glory until they see it. And you sit there with them and you do it till you see it. Look up into the infinite glories of the vastness of space and think about what you're seeing. There's your assignment. (laughs) because every square inch of the cosmos shouts the glory of His name to those willing to see it. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Oh, listen. Don't neglect to gaze at His glory. Your soul needs this. Your children's souls need this. Isaiah 40, verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might and because of the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable implication and you need to see that. And so sometimes... Especially in this culture, we need to work at seeing beyond the plastic, man-made, fake world we live in. And to cultivate a sense of awe and amazement at the things God has made that are too big for us. Things only God Himself could make because if we're not seeing, we won't be in awe. And if we're not in awe, we won't worship as we ought. And so stand there gazing at His beauty. And and when you do that, think about this, all of that beauty is nothing but the work of His fingers. Look at that. Verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. His fingers. This wasn't even hard for Him. A mere finger flick. A, A little child's play. He didn't even break a sweat when He put those stars in place and planted the moon in its circuit. It's nothing to Him who who holds them all in their orbits and keeps them burning and blazing for His glory by the billions. I mean, what a God! And David looks at that. Then he looks down at himself and he says, So what am I? What are we? What is man that you even notice? You see, it's really hard to see such glory and remain self-obsessed. Which brings us to verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, that you care? In other words, be amazed. Be amazed that such a God would take such a notice of you. What is man 
David asks. And he uses, he uses two different words for man and, and then man and son of man, both of which emphasize the weakness and the frailty of humanity. Especially that word son of man, uh, son of Adama, Adamai, uh, where we get the word Adam, but also where we get the word dust. So he's emphasizing our dustness. He's highlighting our temporariness and smallness. You ever, you ever felt small under the night sky? Just tiny and insignificant? Or maybe it's some grand site like the Grand Canyon. Have you been there? Remember John Piper saying one time, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to feel big. Those things don't make you feel big. They make you feel absolutely infinitesimally small and insignificant. And so you stand there before a site like that and it puts you in your place. Uh, that point is driven home in Psalm 144, verse 3. O Lord, what is man that you regard him? The son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. What am I in the sight of this grand and glorious God who made all these things with a flick of his finger? I'm nothing. I'm no one. I'm just a speck of dirt, a little dust crawling around on the surface of this rock called earth, spinning around a sun that's just one of billions upon billions of others that God has created. And so it would not be surprising at all if God took no notice of us at all. Any more than you've taken notice of those tiny little bacteria that walk around on your skin and swim in your sweat every single day. Now what is surprising is that He takes notice of us at all. In fact, infinite notice. For it says He is mindful of us. That word mindful means to remember, but with attention, to, to pay attention, to, to keep in mind. It's a very warm word that pictures a compassionate attentiveness. The, the kind that a, a mother tends to give her nursing child. Because we are mindful of these little ones we talked about earlier, these little ones that we care so much about. I remember, I remember the first time I held one of my daughters in my hands. I don't know how that was like for you. For me, every alarm bell went off in my head. I mean, she was so small, so fragile. Instantly, she captivated my heart. She was precious to me. I found myself thinking about her all the time. I'd get up in the middle of the night and I'd go check on her in her crib just to make sure she was still breathing. So have you do that? I mean the first child. By the fifth child, you're, you're cool. <laughs> but you see, it's that kind of mindfulness. David asked, how can this infinitely glorious God give that kind of attention to us? Jesus says the very hairs on your head are numbered. Psalmist elsewhere says that He keeps every one of your tears in His bottle. He knows us. He sees us. He's intimately aware of us. Why? Oh, because, David says, second, He cares for us. Another term of intimate concern. Listen, dear one, you are not just another number in His cosmic computer. Another cog in the intergalactic machinery. No, He cares for you. He pays attention to your cries. He's attentive to your pain. Jesus said in Luke 12, 24, Consider the ravens, these birds flying around outside. They, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't build storehouses or barns, and yet God feeds them. 
Of how much more value are you than birds? He knows. He cares. And again, David asks, why? Which brings us to this third thing. And that is the majesty that God has given to man. The majesty God has intended for man, which we broke. And God has promised to restore. First of all, the majesty that God intended. Verse 5, Yet you made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, angels, etc. And crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish, and everything that passes along the paths of the sea. When God made us in His image, He intended that we would rule this world for His glory. Verse 5 is in fact a flashback to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over what? The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps. See, same words the psalmist is picking up there. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Mankind was created to rule this world for God and His glory. Adam and Eve, our first parents, stood before God in innocent splendor, crowned with glory and honor. Glory because we were made in God's image to reflect His glory like mirrors back to Him so that His splendor would shine throughout the created universe through us. Honor. Because we were given the honor of exercising His dominion over every other creature that God has placed on this planet. So we were meant to be mirrors of His glory and magnifiers of His honor. And that is what dominion means in verse 6. It's another word for authority. Like, like authority, dominion can be either good or bad. In fact, it is neither good or bad in and of itself. There's good authority and dominion where you use your power and ability to do good for others, to benefit them. Then there's bad authority and dominion where you use your power and authority to crush and abuse others. Mankind was entrusted by God with a good authority. Again, you've given man dominion over the works of your hands. You put it all under your feet. The sheep, the ox, the the, the beasts, the birds, the fish, all of it in the context that they might glorify you. And again, notice how that just mirrors what we read in Genesis 1, uh, 28. God blessed them, the, the newly made humans. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory, it means. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. Uh, Shepherd them. Farm them. uh, 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 Move them along for my glory. Man was to exercise dominion for creation's good and God's glory. That was God's purpose for us. It's still God's purpose for us. That we would know and walk with Him and humbly submit our lives and our powers to Him and use our gifts and everything that He has placed in our hands for His glory and the good of others. That's why we, human beings alone, among all God's creatures, are said to be made in His image and likeness. We are above all creation, but we are beneath God. That's what the psalmist means when he says in verse 5, You have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, all the heavenly residences, or literally... What that says is, you have 
made him a little lower than God. Because the word he uses here is the word Elohim. Same word that's used of God throughout Genesis, throughout Revelation. And yet this word Elohim is an interesting word because it can have a range of meanings. Most of the time in the Bible, it does just mean God in this generic sense. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. But it can also mean God's plural. In fact, it is a plural noun, as it does in Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, you shall have no other Elohim, no other gods before me. And then it can just mean even more generically, all the beings that are up there in the heavens, angels, God, all of it, hence the translation heavenly beings. All those beings created by God, things like angels who live in heaven and are His servants. So, so when the Septuagint later translated the Greek Old Testament in uh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, that's the word they're going to use. They're going to translate that as angelos, angel. You have made him a little lower than angels, and we'll, we'll see that in a minute. But here's the point. Here's the point of all that. Either way, man was made by God to be the pinnacle of his creation. Man was made in God's image to glorify God. Man was set apart by God for God to live in a relationship with God above the rest of creation to tend and care for it for God's glory. That's who we are. That is God's purpose. So what happened? Because I look around today and that's not what I'm seeing. Right? Are human beings by and large running around out there living to the glory of God, giving honor and praise to Him with all that they've got so others will join them, using their gifts to serve others and bless creation in His name so that God is seen and rejoiced in throughout the whole world. Is that what we're about? So what happened? Well, if you know your Bible, you know what happened. Genesis 3 happened. Mankind rebelled against God. Adam and Eve sinned and fell short of the glory of God and took us all with them. We fell and broke our crown. We spoiled the honor that He gave us by grabbing glory for ourselves and plunging into the mud and muck of sin with Satan. We, we demoted ourselves from the exalted position God had given us to grovel in the dirt with the snake. We lost our dominion. We lost our dominion. You don't believe that? You go out into the jungle somewhere, find a tiger, say, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. How's that going to end for you? Tiger's not going to recognize your dominion. He's going to recognize you as lunch. Or take a rattlesnake, a wild one, stick it in your pocket and tell it to obey you. Try this. Defeat death when it comes knocking at your door. Or for that matter, just try to subdue your own sinfulness so that it doesn't consume you. You can't do it. Why? Because something has gone terribly wrong. We're not what we were created to be. We're not living the glory God intended as He says in Psalm 8. So what now? What's our hope? 
Hebrews chapter 2. Why don't you turn there in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews gives us the answer. The author of Hebrews is going to pick up this story at exactly this point of what now? Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, in the context, he's talking about Christ the Son who is above and beyond all things, including above and beyond all angels. Verse 5, he says, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, to which we are speaking. To them, it was to us. It was to humans. It has been testified somewhere, and he's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, lower than the... Now he's following the Septuagint here, the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That was your goal and purpose for mankind. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That man was to rule here in God's image and God's likeness. And yet, here's the problem. He comes to the problem we've seen. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. We don't see the world subjected to humanity, to mankind, as made in the image and likeness of God. Man has failed. Man has fallen from his high exalted position. Uh, Through sin, we have forfeited God's purpose and lost our dominion and lost our place of living in His presence to His glory and, and enjoyment forever and ever. So now what? Well, back to Hebrews 2. Again, verse 8, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him, not man now, Christ. But we pivot, we see Christ, who for a little while in the incarnation was made lower than the angels as far as outward status goes, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Look, there's the restored dominion, so that by the great so that uh, because of the suffering of death, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might enter our death, he might take it on and he might destroy it. Enter Christ. Enter the old, old story of Christmas. By the miracle of the Incarnation, God's Son took up our dust. He became Adama and became a man like us. Why? To fulfill what we failed to be. Christ became the second Adam, the second Son of Man. He entered the garden of this world where we rebelled to die in our place and rise in victory in order to restore us to all that sin has taken. True dominion is restored in Him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that Christ can say at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given on heaven and earth to me. Christ, as man, restored to man all that sin has broken to bring us back into fellowship with God and into joyful service to God. So think about that. So while death and loss came through Adam, life and restoration are ours through Christ. A full restoration. 1 Corinthians 15 21 to 26 is also going to refer to Romans, to Psalm 8. Listen to it. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
Everybody that's connected to Adam, they're going to die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. All those connected to Christ get His life. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until what? Until He has put all enemies under His feet. There's the quote from Psalm 8. And that last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, do you hear the reference to Rome to Psalm 8 there? It is all going under His feet. From the moment Christ died and rose again, He exerted the dominion and he is, he is defeating everything that stands against the name so that the name of God will be magnified above the heavens and upon earth and in every creature as we bow our knees. Uh, he puts all things under His feet. Whose feet? Christ's feet. Christ who reigns on our behalf and calls us to Himself by faith because He's Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. So how mindful is God of us? Mindful enough to send His Son to enter our death and sorrow and pull us out of it. How much does He care for us? So much so that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. No wonder David ends this psalm by repeating the opening song of praise at the end in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. How majestic. Not only can we see it as we look at creation around us, but now we see it even more so and more clearly by faith as we see Christ in salvation. And we're able to say with the writer of Hebrews, but we see Him. But we see Him. Do you see Him this morning? Are you trusting Him? Are you trusting Him to restore what sin has broken? To restore the brokenness? that we humans have brought upon ourselves and to bring you back into that place of life with God which was His original design and now is going to be restored even greater and more glorious and more beautiful even than Adam knew in the garden. Is that your hope? Fix your eyes on Him. Lord, as we consider this psalm and as we, as we consider these coming weeks of the Advent season, don't let us waste them on trivialities. Oh, there'll be silly songs and they'll be fun and there'll be things we'll do that are just for fun. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless that's all we have. Would you awaken us to your glory as we step under, under a night sky? Would you lift our faces to see your glory, to be astounded and amazed? As we look at our children and the children of others, would we be astounded at such creatorly beauty? And would we pray for them to come to know You? And then, Lord, 
would You cause us to see that Christ came in our place, the Son of Man, who came for a time into this creation, took on a flesh like ours, to die and rise again, to lift us out of the brokenness of this creation and to bring us to joy in God forever. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.